0: Good morning, ECC. Good morning. It's good to see you all. It's good to be back with you. I'm coming from a place that was a little colder than this, just a, a little bit, like 20 degrees. Um, if you have your Bibles, please head out to Luke chapter 15. We're going to be reading Luke chapter 15 from verse 1 to 10. <clears throat> Luke 15, 1 to 10. And as you're turning there, I wonder, have you ever lost something and really, really, really searched for it um, and then the joy of finding it finally hits you? Some of us are experts at losing things. My wife keeps complaining. I'll be saying, I can't find my phone. I can't find my keys. I can't find, I can't find. And she's like, yeah, you're holding them. Like, oh, yeah, about that. Um, And I'm not also very good at looking for stuff, um, even when it's right in front of me. The British news channel, Channel 5, uh, carried out a TV experiment. And the experiment is they got these two siblings, two girls, a six-year-old and a five-year-old, and placed them on a busy train station in South London. And the idea was uh, these girls were just supposed to stand and look lost. Um, And of course, there was security personnel, their parents were there, so it was secure, but those people were hidden these girls were just going to stand there and look lost. So they started with a six-year-old. And they wanted to see how long would it take someone before they noticed this girl is lost and asked her, hey, what's your name, are you okay, where's your mom, where's your dad? You would think this would take five, 10 minutes before someone is like, ah, six-year-old girl alone, and she looks like a six-year-old. Yeah, 15 minutes passed, 20, 40, it took one hour before someone stopped to ask this six-year-old, are you okay, where are your parents? So they redid the experiment, this is the Channel 5 News, they redid the experiment with her five-year-old sister, and literally got her five-year-old sister to sit on the floor, sucking her thumb. And people are whizzing and walking past her. It took an hour and 15 minutes for one person to stop. 616 people passed this little girl. Before one person stopped to ask, where's your mom? Are you okay? Are you lost? Now you have to ask, what what was going through their heads? How do you pass a five-year-old, a six-year-old, and not stop to find out, are they okay? They are visibly alone. They are visibly lost. And when they interviewed these people who passed, Almost to a man, all of them said, I was worried about what other people would think of me if I stopped. Other people's perception superseded their need to help a child. They didn't want people to think ill of them or think that they are sketchy or weird people. Right? Kind of strange. In the stories we are about to read, you will see, and I hope we see, someone who finds joy in finding the lost. Someone who doesn't care what other people's perception of him was, his joy and his delight is in finding the lost. I mean, think about that story of the little girls. If you flip that story, if it was true and these girls were actually lost, can you imagine their joy when their mom eventually found them? Or better yet, can you imagine the mother's joy when she would find them? as she would go around looking for them, searching for them, screaming their names, she wouldn't care what you thought of her, would she? Her only interest is in finding her children in much the same way. You and I, I hope we see someone who finds his joy in finding the lost. And really that's what I want to leave us with today. A deep sense of joy that Jesus sought you, found you, and delights in you, that he is the God who seeks and finds and delights in the lost who are now found. So Luke chapter 15, from verse 1 to 10, I will read verse 1 to 10 and say, this is the word of the Lord, and you will respond by saying, write it on our hearts, we pray. This is the word of the Lord. Well done. Luke chapter 15, from verse 1 to 10. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, He called together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This is the word of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that is living and active and sharper than a double-edged sword. Would you help me step out of your way? Would you speak to me and speak through me to the end that our lives may be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ? Forbid it, Lord, that anyone except you should get glory at this time. So, Lord, what we do not have, please give us through your word. What we do not know, please teach us through your word. And what we are not, please make us through your word. We pray these things for your glory and our joy in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So just to situate you in this book, Luke's gospel is about our great God and Savior who comes to seek and save the lost. Our great God who is our servant. And by this point in Luke 15, he has his eyes set on Jerusalem. He is intent on going to Jerusalem. And on his way there, he tells these parables, these stories, so people understand who he is and what he came to achieve. In fact, Luke 15 is one of the most beloved chapters of the Bible. It has three stories, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. We will look at the lost son next week, but today we are going to just look at that lost sheep and lost coin. So right there in chapter 15, verse 1, it starts out by saying the tax collectors and the sinners. Now, these group of people, the sinners and tax collectors, were called people of the land as opposed to people of heaven. The Jews understood themselves to have the one true God who resided in heaven, and they were meant to be the people of heaven. But these sinners and tax collectors were the despised people of the land. They acted like earthly, landly, so to speak, people. That word, sinners, is an umbrella term referring to these notorious, immoral, Torah-trespassing, law-breaking, wrong, quote-unquote, bad people. The only people worse than them were the tax collectors. They were the most despised people in Israel. The only person a Jew hated more than the Romans was a tax collector, right? In fact, there was a Pharisaic order and regulation that said to marry a daughter to one of them, the tax collectors, was like exposing her bound and helpless to a lion. And so for the Pharisees and for everyone, the order was entrust no money to him, take no testimony from him, that means... A tax collector's testimony wasn't even valid in court. Whether the crime was committed against them or they witnessed a crime, irrelevant. We don't want your testimony. Trust him with no secret. Do not appoint him guardian of an orphan. Do not make him custodian of charitable funds. Do not accompany him on a journey. Do not have him as a guest in your home. Remember that phrase. Do not have any business dealings from him and receive no alms from him. Literally, poor people would rather starve than receive food from a tax collector. That's how despised these people were. You think about that for a sec. Why? Why were they so despised? The Bible made it clear that thou shalt not commit murder. The Jews just went ahead and committed social murder. These people were completely outcast. Why? Number one, they were bankrolling Rome. They were collecting taxes to strengthen and sustain the occupying army that had come and occupied Judea. Two, these people were corrupt to the core. You see, Rome didn't care about how the money was received. Rome was like, as long as we receive our 10 drachmas or our 10 silver coins per day, we don't care how much collect. So the tax collectors would say, 10 drachmas for Rome and 10 for me. So they would squeeze their own citizens and charge them higher than what even the Romans were charging. And then lastly, these people would subvert justice. I mean, they'd pay everyone. You couldn't take them to court because they've paid the judge, they've paid the Roman. It was just Wasterland out there. Everything was by waster. Everything was by the hookup. They were absolutely despised. They hated them, wanted nothing to do with them, and lumped them in with these immoral sinners and tax collectors who are an eyesore and an embarrassment to the Jews, to the Israelites, to the people who are meant to be the people of heaven, and they had to deal with these people of the land. These debased, debauched, treasonous, sketchy people, what are they doing? Chapter 15 verse 1 says, they were all drawing near to hear Jesus don't miss that they wanted to listen to him at the transfiguration of Christ the father speaks over the son and says this is my son whom I love with him I am well pleased listen to him. Every Jew understood from Deuteronomy 6 when the Bible told them, listen, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. That didn't mean just use the appendages on the side of your face. That meant that your mind's attention, your heart's affection, your life's actions, everything about you was bent toward this person, God, that the posture of their lives was meant to be listening. In fact, in the verse just before, look at chapter 14 from verse 35 where Jesus has explained what it means to be a disciple, here's what he says, speaking about salt. Verse 35, it says, It is of no use either for the soil, that if if salt loses its saltiness, is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And what are the tax collectors and sinners doing? Hearing. They are the ones who are actually listening to God. They're the ones who are actually obeying Deuteronomy 6. They're the ones who've come to the Lord to listen to him. Meanwhile, the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling. Don't miss the irony. The Pharisees and the scribes viewed themselves as the obeyers and custodians of the law. They should have known better than anyone else. Firstly, you can't grumble and listen at the same time. Secondly, they should have known from their own law, especially from the book of Exodus, chapter 16, God hates grumbling. They should have known verses like Numbers 14, 27. How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I have had the grumbling of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me. Do you see? They should have known that not only is grumbling a problem, but they should be listening. Instead, they're grumbling. And what is their chief complaint? Verse 2. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. He receives them. He accepts them. He welcomes them. And he eats with them. In this culture, to eat with someone wasn't just like, Oh, I have extra food, have some. It meant fellowship. It meant depth. It meant you're bringing them into your very heart. And they couldn't believe that. Because for them... To accept and dine with and eat with sinners was to accept sin. And they couldn't stomach that. Now you and I can judge them harshly and be like, these legalistic Pharisees. But do understand, if a 23-year-old Pharisee came to you, this is the guy you'd want your daughter to marry. This is the guy you're like, he dresses well, he speaks well, he obeys the rules, and he's rich. Yeah, marry him. Right? Right? This is the guy who everyone esteemed. This is the guy who didn't want sin in the camp, so to speak. But here's what they had missed. What they had missed is that, number one, this Jesus who is welcoming them in to eat with them would change these sinners forever. But the bigger thing they had missed is that they themselves were sinners. And that light bulb just didn't seem to be going off. So they say this man receives sinners and tax collectors and eats with them. They meant it as a criticism, but it was actually a compliment. But he sees that they're not quite getting it. So he tells them a story. In fact, verse 3 begins with the word, so, after their complaint, so he told them the parable. Because they're not yet listening He designs this parable for them because he wants them to listen. Throughout Jesus' life, there were three kinds of people that followed him. The crowds, the confessors, and the killers. See, the crowds would follow Jesus just for personal benefit. They would hear Jesus, not necessarily listen to him, but they would hear Jesus, but really why they were following him was for personal benefit. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus heals many diseases, and the crowds are going, Oh yeah, I'll follow this guy. Hospital is expensive. If I ever get sick, I'll just hang out with this guy. And he'll heal me. In chapter 7 and chapter 8, not only does he have power over disease, after Jairus' daughter falls sick and dies, and the widow's daughter falls sick and dies, he raises them from the dead. This is great! If I get sick, he'll heal me, but if perchance I don't get to him in time, I'll just fall in front of him and die. Then he'll raise me back up. I'll follow this guy. I'll Listen to this guy. In chapter 9, not only does he show that he has power over disease and death, in chapter 9 he feeds 5,000. He now has power over diet. This is fantastic. I'll never have to work a day in my life because I work to eat, but this guy multiplies bread. So when I'm hungry, Jesus will up? Give me some of that food. By chapter 9 again, the latter part, he not only has power over disease and death and diet, He casts out these scary, mysterious things called demons. That, quite frankly, I don't understand. I don't have the time to deal with. So, Jesus, (laughs) I will follow you. Just in case I get infected with one of those demons that jumps out of something and enters me, you'll be right there. And by chapter 12, he shows his power over the dictators known as the Pharisees who are telling everybody what they should do and when they should do them. Who are these guys anyway? Jesus, get rid of them. Thanks. Those are the crowds. Following him and listening to him only because of what they can get. But the second group of people that used to follow him were the confessors. These are the Luke chapter 9, Peter type people who say, no, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. They've trusted him. They've obeyed him. And they were in the vast minority. Then lastly were the killers, also known as the Pharisees and the scribes. They were only following and listening to Jesus so that they can trip him up and trap him and kill him. For them, the only good Jesus was a dead Jesus. For them, he had taken away their influence and they wanted it back. Kill him. They had taken away their power and they wanted it back. Kill him. Find something that makes it legal for us to kill this guy. One of the ways you know that God loves his enemies is that even here, in this chapter, he's trying to move them from being killers to being confessors. Even there, he's trying to do them good. They are grumbling and not grateful. They are legalistic instead of listening. But even then, he's trying to move them to the place where they are confessors and not killers. And so we read texts like this, and one of the things we have to ask is, Who do we identify with in this story? The tax collectors and the sinners, or the Pharisee? Because it's very easy to identify with the tax collectors and the sinners. We always want to see ourselves as the good guy. But if we're being honest, there's probably a Pharisee in you and me, because we naturally identify with someone in the story. When I would read the story of David and Goliath for my son, Lawi, when he was around two years old, we tell him, this is David and Goliath, and who's the story? And Lawi, without skipping a beat, would say, Goliath! Because Goliath is down with big muscles and a sword. I want to be like Goliath. And we're like, we no. That's missing the point. <laughs> but he naturally identified with a character. We do the same thing. Who do you identify with? Well, let me put it differently. What's your instinct around God's word? Is it to listen? Or is it to grumble? Why is Jesus the only way? Why can't other religions lead to the same place? Who needs God to be moral anyway? Why is baptism such a big deal? Why does God care about my money? Why should I serve in church? I have better places to serve. What's your instinct? To grumble or to say, God, I have no idea what I'm doing. Teach me. Help me. I need you. I don't fully understand this thing. Maybe I don't even agree with it, but I'm willing to do it because you said it. I'm willing to listen to you. What's your instinct around quote unquote sinful and savory types? The ones who are committing spectacular sins in your eyes. To look at them and say, people of the land. Or to say, no, that was me before Christ. Do you know the Lord of the Word? Or do you mainly know the Word of the Lord? Are you more excited about a passage you're reading and less excited about the person revealing himself to you and I through that passage? A child of God, when you come to church, who did you come to listen to? Because you and I have a loving God who wants to speak to us through his word and is at work in us that we may listen. Listen. And unbeliever, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, number one, we are glad you're here. But the reason God has you here is that you may listen to him, that lean in and pay attention to him. So verse 3 begins with the word, So, and he goes forward to tell this parable designed mainly for the Pharisees. And he says this in verse 4 to 7, What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying to them, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. When you're dealing with a parable, whenever we are dealing with a parable, One of the principles is not to get bogged down in the details, to overanalyze the details, or to build this big doctrine off the parable. The main idea is find the central truth being communicated within that context. And so a couple of features of this parable is, number one, we see there's a shepherd, a man with a hundred sheep. Shepherds were common in Judea. This idea of a hundred sheep doesn't mean that this shepherd is particularly rich. That wasn't a huge flock at the time. But the main idea is there's a big difference between 100 or 99 and 1. 1 versus 99. And shepherds were commoners. They were kind of looked down upon. Their work and their worth was considered considered menial. The irony is God himself communicates to his people and identifies himself as a shepherd. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Ezekiel 34, God said, I myself, I will be shepherd over my people. Our friends, the Pharisees, should know that in this story, the shepherd is God and the sheep are the lost sinners and tax collectors. Now, you and I read this story, and maybe we have pictures in our house of a shepherd cutely holding a perfectly white sheep walking across. A wilderness, and we're like, oh, that's cute. But for a Judean, they'd be like, I'm sorry, he did what? <laughs> he left 99 sheep to go look for one? For them, that would make no sense for a Judean. Why? Number one, they're going to put themselves at risk of the elements and a harsh environment, wind, sun, thorns, to look for one sheep. When you have 99? Secondly, the shepherd is going to put himself in danger of being eaten by wolves and lions To look for one sheep? Most Judeans would reason if the sheep was dumb enough to get lost, it deserves to be eaten. Leave it. Not to mention, there are 99 other sheep. They can reproduce. You'll be fine. Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. He leaves the 99 to seek the one. In my country, among the Maasai, the people who look after sheep and goats tend to be 8 to 10-year-old boys. If a nine-, nine or ten-year-old boy came and told you, ah, Dad, I'm going to leave the 99 to go into lion country, because for whatever reason, when sheep get lost, they just go into lion country. I'm going to go into lion country to look for the sheep. What? Makes no sense, right? But this is the point. If the shepherd is God... And the sheep are the lost sinners and tax collectors. This is what is at the core of the father's heart and the son's mission. He came to seek and save the lost. He's not going to leave these abandoned sheep, these lost sheep who got themselves lost to begin with. In fact, look at what he does when he finds the sheep. He puts it on his shoulders. The thing is too weak, too diseased, or too injured to even walk, and doesn't show up and say, okay, come on now, walk. You got us into this mess. I did come all the way here to carry you. Let's go. He probably has no sense of direction. He picks up the thing and personally carries it. For the Pharisee, this seemed ungodly. Because for them, godliness meant rule-keeping. For Jesus, godliness meant lost-seeking. That's what he does. And if you and I are going to be about God, Jesus is telling the Pharisees, then we do what he did. We seek the lost. So the songwriter is correct when he says, How deep the Father's love for us! How vast beyond all measure that he should give his only Son to make these wretches his treasure. My dear unbelieving friend, outside of Christ, you are that sheep. We who came to Christ were once all that sheep. Lost. This lostness started a long time ago. And so God sent his son on a rescue mission. Luke calls him the son of God and the son of man in chapter 3. Fully God and fully man, Jesus came on a rescue mission. For these humans who'd gotten lost. Because in Genesis chapter 3, our first father, Adam, sinned against God, got lost, and literally God asks him, where are you? Because he had been lost from the presence of God, brought upon himself death. His sin meant God's wrath now landed on him, because the wages of sin is death. This separation of eternal death meant the only person who could bridge that chasm was God himself, who sends his son to die on behalf of sinners who sends his son to die so that they may have life, who sends his son to bear the wrath of sin, dies a bloody, painful death on a cross, and with his last breath said, it is paid in full. It is finished. The debt owed by these sinners to God has been paid. He doesn't only die, he rises again three days later, and even now is seeking and finding the lost if they would recognize that they are sinners that they are lost that they are in need of someone to carry them on his shoulders all the days of their life and bring them safely home and this is the point Jesus is making that God is seeking the lost sinner and the lost tax collector and he will not relent until he finds his sheep and so he tells a second parable with added flavor about this woman. Go with me to verse eight. Or what woman, having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me for I have found the coin that I had lost. Now this idea of 10 silver coins, again, doesn't mean that she's a very rich woman. But one silver coin, one drachma, was a day's wage. That was payment for a whole day. So it's still a significant amount of money. And she loses this one coin. Again, she has nine others. It's not the end of the world. But she loses this one coin. And this lost coin, goes somewhere on the floor. Now, they didn't have like concrete or tiled wooden floors. They had earthen floors, which meant the thing could have been covered in dust, it could have rolled, it could be outside, and the buildings tended to be dark. So she lights this lamp. It might have been even night, but she lights this lamp, is lifting furniture, is sweeping about the place, and she's diligent. This is hard work. Diligently searches for the whole house, finds that coin, does not quit, has no quit in her until she finds said coin. Then she does something strange. When she finds the coin, notice what she does. She calls all her friends and her neighbors and throws a party (laughs) that she found the coin. Now, my dad's an accountant. Some of you out there are accountants. If you're an accountant and you're reading this story, you're going, wait, wasn't the party more expensive than the coin? Wouldn't it have been just better to find the coin, pocket it, and say, Thank you, Lord? But that's missing the point. <laughs> that's exactly how an accountant like Judas would read that story. The point is not the coin, the point is the value she has placed on the coin. And if the woman is a picture of God and the coin is a picture of lost humanity, listen, you and I don't lose our value because we are lost. God's commitment to his image bearers is not reduced because they are lost. He will find them. He will do with them as this woman did with the coin. And it's in Isaiah 53. We all like sheep have gone astray, but he came looking for us. It's in John 6, we don't come to the Son unless he drew us to himself. It's John 15, he chose us, he's looking for us. And what is the predominant emotion when he eventually finds his sheep and finds his coin? Joy, absolute joy in finding, seeking, finding his sheep. So let's do a quick Bible study. Every time you see the word rejoicing, Rejoice or joy, shout it out. Okay, verse 5. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders. Okay, take two. He lays it on his shoulders. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, With me, because I have found the sheep that I lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more in heaven over one sinner who repents and over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Verse 9. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, With me, for I have found the coin that I lost. Just so I tell you there is before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Did you catch it? It's joy. It is the joy of God. It is the joy of the shepherd. It is the joy of the one looking for the lost to find them and seek them and put you and I on his shoulders. Child of God, think about that for a sec. That means you're not a bother to him. You're his pleasure. He delights in you. He doesn't just love you. He likes you. Yes, you were lost, and he came looking for you. And he didn't find you and go like, okay, now, can we walk, can we walk? You've wasted a lot of my time. No. He wanted you and came looking for you and on the day he saved you there was an entire party in heaven and just so we are clear all of heaven gets in on this party that that phrase the angels of heaven or heaven is really a phrase to say god himself delighted in saving you it was his joy to do so that's what hebrews 12:2 says that jesus for the joy ahead of him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty. This was his joy. And what is it that he'd have after the cross that he didn't have before the cross? It wasn't majesty, power, dominion. It was you. He had you after the cross. Us, the church, his joy, his pleasure. So on Monday morning, when you feel like a tax collector and a sinner, who are you? His joy. So on Tuesday evening, when you've had that proverbial fight with your wife, and you're ready to just walk out of the house, and you think you're the worst human being in existence, who are you? His joy. On Wednesday evening, when you snapped at your children, and set a horrible example of what it means to be a Christian. Who are you? His joy. His joy is in seeking, finding, and delighting in you. But if this man and God called Jesus delights in receiving sinners, the opposite is true. He also rejects the self righteous Notice that phrase he says in chapter 15 and verse 10, I beg your pardon, and uh, verse 7. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. The issue is not that they didn't need to repent. Any human being who's ever been born needs to repent. What he's trying to help them see is if you're a human, you're a sinner. If you're a sinner, you need to repent. The Pharisees thought they didn't need to repent. The Pharisees thought they were fine. The Pharisees thought their rule-keeping meant that they too would enter the master's joy and he's saying, no, no, no. In fact, you will be rejected if you do not repent. And this phrase, repent, what does it mean? It's a Heartfelt sorrow for sin, a renouncing of sin, and a sincere commitment to forsake sin and walk in obedience to Christ. It's never separated from faith. To repent means to turn away from sin, and to believe means to turn to Christ. To turn away from something, turn to someone. That's what it meant to repent. And Jesus is saying, it's not your rule-keeping that will get you accepted by God. Romans says no one is justified by works of the law. James says we are all lawbreakers. The point here Jesus is making is we turn away from sin and trust in him. That's the command, that we turn in our faith to Christ. That's what makes heaven rejoice. The Pharisees still were not getting it. (laughs) They still couldn't believe it because in their heads, It is rule-keeping, rule-keeping, law-obedience. And Jesus is trying to communicate to them that at the end of time, it's these tax collectors and sinners that will enjoy heaven, that will be thrown for a party in heaven because they repented. Dear unbelieving friend, are you here, and you're struggling with all your might to keep rules, to be good and acceptable before God? You're no more acceptable to God by keeping rules. You're no more able to be acceptable before God by keeping rules as you are able to carry Jonathan Bonner from here to Dubai with all your legs broken and all your hands broken and your eyes gouged out. It's not going to happen. That's not what's going to impress God. Here's what God is impressed by. Repentance and turning to his son, listening to his son. Again, if you're here and you're an unbeliever, or maybe you are a believer and you think your rule keeping—that's what will impress God, that will keep you morally upright with God—and that's. Let me just ask you an honest question: Aren't you tired? Aren't you morally exhausted? Aren't you tired of trying to keep everything together and hold? Everything together, and are you tired of fighting the world, the flesh, and the devil, and you don't even have the resources to do so? There is a God who is so good. He died, won that battle, gave you the victory, that by your simple repentance and faith, you'd be His joy, and your war with all these things would be from a position of victory, not for the sake of victory that you have him. So a, a couple of implications for us as a church. Here are some implications. Number one, I pray that we would continue being a church that seeks the lost in our evangelism. Your evangelism doesn't need to be perfect. It just needs to be faithful, and God will handle the results. I pray that we'd be continue, continue being a church that learns from people like Faith Carpenter, who shares the gospel with her house helps. That we'd learn from people like Casoria, who shares the gospel with his neighbor. That we'd continue being a people who share the gospel with our fathers, as one member is currently doing. His father being a very Phariseic man, and he doesn't know it. I pray that we would continue being a church that does missions together. That we would put all our muscle behind what God is doing to reach the nations. That we put our muscle behind men like Alan Manzaneras, behind men like Nigusi, who the Lord is sending to reach the ends of the, the earth. That we put our muscle behind our global uh, pastoral apprenticeship, raising men to reach some of the hardest contexts and hardest places in the world. That we put our, church, our muscle as a church behind people like Mackenzie Clobberdance and love her, knowing that wherever she goes, she will be a missile for the kingdom and do great damage to the kingdom of darkness that we put our muscle behind GTS and people like Sam Parkinson, that he may increase the theological and biblical capacities of people who will go places we will never reach. That's the mission. We are the real missionary. And that's God's heart. I pray that we'd continue being a people who pray for and encourage and raise shepherds who leave the 99 to look for the lost, You know, one of the things I love about being a shepherd in this church and listening to the shepherds of this church, after services, they're not so much asking who was there, though they are asking that. Their main question is who was missing? After services, they're asking, hey, I've not seen Jane in like three weeks. Does anyone know where she is? How about you go look for her? They're asking questions like, I've noticed John's wife has not come with him for the last two months. Something's up. Can we go make sure he's okay? That's what a shepherd does. They pursue the lost. They pursue the missing. And as your shepherds, that's what we will do. If it irritates you when we look for you, we will intend to irritate you even more. It is not accidental. It is intentional. We will keep irritating you until we find you. So do yourself a favor and just come back. Simplify your life. In fact, better yet, eh? Why don't you just go ahead and irritate each other? <laughs> look for each other during the week, during the month. And if you're ignored, look some more. Till you find that person, that brother, that sister who has seemingly disappeared. And they respond to you for, okay, fine, you've texted me every day this week, I'm here. Yes. Because we love you. And we love each other. And you are our joy. And you are the joy in the land. Your God's joy. You know, sometimes pastors have these very silly conversations. Last month we had three hundred people. This month we have six hundred people. Ha ha ha. Yeah, but have you noticed seventy guys have disappeared? Have you noticed that some people actually left the country? Have you noticed that four of these sisters are deeply depressed because they lost work or lost husbands or lost love? Have you noticed any of that? dude, if I left my two children with you to take care of, I'd say, here's Lawi and Kwe, take care of them for a few hours, we are going and we are coming back, and you say, great. And so me and Sheila go, and we come back. And I come back, and there are 20 children in the house. I'm like, oh, wow, I guess there's a party. And I ask, hey, where are my kids? And you're like, ah, I don't know, somewhere there. And I find one of my children. I'd be like, okay, where's my second born? He's like, ah, that doesn't matter. There are 19 other children here. What do you think I will, forget me, what do you think my wife will do? (laughs) She'll break you in half. Of course she will, because that is an individual child she cares about. God cares about his individual children, not just a mass of sheep called a church. And when they disappear, he cares. And we care, as your shepherds. And you should care, as each other's keeper. Lastly, child of God, I pray that you know God loves you. That when you think I'm no better than a tax collector and a sinner, you will hear him smile and say, you're not telling me anything new. Come, you're still my sheep. I still delight in you. I still find my joy from you. And if you're here and you don't know Jesus, I pray you find this shepherd who is looking for you. Not rule keeping, but looking for you to repent and trust in him, in his death for you, in his resurrection for you, that you may find the king. Because any of the Christians here will tell you in the words of the hymn, I was lost but Jesus found me. He found the sheep that went astray. He threw his loving arms around me and drew me back into his way. That could be you today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that is living and active and sharper than a double-edged sword. Grant, Holy Father, that we would trust in you the God who died to save us, the God who delights in us, the God who derives his deepest joy, the God who derives his deepest joy from seeking and saving the lost. Lord, grant that we would be a people who do exactly that with our friends and neighbors and family members who don't know you, but that we do it with each other, that we'd rest in the knowledge that you delight in us. We pray these things for your glory and our joy in Jesus' name. Amen.